Good evening, everyone. What a delight it is to be gathered together again in the Lord's house for a second time to be able to set our hearts and minds towards the Lord on His holy day and to embrace Him in worship and to be loved by Him. A very warm welcome to all of you and any visitors in our midst tonight. It is our prayer that God Himself would encourage your hearts and build you up by faith to behold Christ in His glory. We've gathered here this evening to worship God, and so as we come into His presence, I'd like to invite you to please stand with me. We are called to worship the King tonight with the words of Psalm 96, verse 1 to 4. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Amen. Let us pray. Indeed, O Lord, our God, We recognize that you are to be feared above all gods. And yet, Lord, we need not fear you with terror. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has reconciled us to yourself. And so we pray that, Lord, today you would help us to behold our Savior. To worship him with pure hearts. We acknowledge before you that even today our hearts have wandered far from you. We have spent our days in needless pursuits of vain glory. We have worshipped idols. We have turned away from the one we love. And so we pray that by the blood of Christ you would cleanse our consciences that we might worship you with pure hearts tonight. Bless your people, Lord, and bless them in the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come, brothers and sisters, let us worship God with the words of all people that on earth do dwell.
remain standing. We're going to confess our faith this evening using the Shorter Catechism question 86, and I'll ask you to join me in responding with the answer together. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation, as He is offered to us in the Gospel. Amen. Please be seated. We're going to open up our Bibles this evening as we continue reading our way through the story of the Scriptures each Sunday night. We find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is God's word for you this evening. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them into lame, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! 
I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man, and he should have, that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made woman childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he made, him, that he made Saul king over Israel. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, we don't get to choose how we obey the Lord. It's one of the major lessons from the life of Saul. Saul consecutively attempted to decide the way God would be obeyed, the way God would be worshipped, the way God would be followed. 
And one of the core messages is God is God and we are not, and we must do as He tells us. His covenantal people are to keep His covenantal commands. And that's the pathway to blessing, obedience to the things that the Lord lays before us. And it's not burdensome, it's joyful, it's peace, it's blessing. But so often, aren't we hard of heart and quick to become stubborn and to turn our own way? But the Lord is merciful and pleased to show His grace to any that would call upon Him. And so we're going to stand and sing together. Salvation belongs to our God as we remember the grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior. Let's stand and sing together. David says in Psalm 102, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. And we have the same privilege, don't we? That we can lift up our cries to God and he never turns us away. So let's do that now. Let's come before the Lord in a time of prayer.
Well, do we have any children that would like to come to the front today? Well, okay, so we've got four children sitting up here. Let me ask you a question. Were you afraid to sit on your chairs when you sat down? Why not? Like, what? They're just chairs. Yeah, but weren't you worried that you might fall through them? No. Like, what if they didn't hold you up? I sat on a chair once and it broke. Did you know that? Actually, it happened to me about three times. I might have been overweight, but either way, it happened. Um, so why were you happy to sit on these chairs and not worry about them breaking? Pretty sturdy, okay, okay. Can, can you help me with something? Okay, can you stand up? Okay, now just take half a step forward. Okay, now close your eyes. No, no peeking, okay? No, and so that means no opening your eyes. I can see your parents. I can tell on you if you open your eyes. <laughs> okay, I'm going to spin you around, okay? So okay. just keep your eyes closed and turn about five times. Here we go. Don't fall over because that'll look really bad on the video. <laughs> three, three. Okay, one more time around. Okay, almost stop. Now keep your eyes closed. Um, now, I may or may not have put you in front of the chair. Do you feel like sitting down? <laughs> not, really? not really? Not really. Okay, why? Um, because I don't know if the chair is <laughs> Okay, what, what if I promised the chair was directly behind you? Okay. Okay, it's not. Don't sit down. Open your eyes. <laughs> okay, you sit down, it's fine. Um, th- this is a little bit what faith works like, okay? Faith is not blind. It's not like having your eyes closed and spinning around a whole bunch and then going, I've got to believe in that thing over there. Faith is believing in a promise. And we're going to be looking at that today, that faith takes something and believes in it. Just like these chairs. See, we we can sit in the chairs and believe they're going to hold us because we've sat in them before and we know they're made well. And maybe when we were little, mummy was like, no, you can totally sit on that chair. It's totally fine. You won't fall through it, I promise. I'll even show you, and then we'll sit in the chair for you. Oh, sweet, and you sit on it. Um, Faith is always based on stuff. And today, we're going to be looking at Hebrews 11, verse 1 and 2, which helps us understand a little bit about how faith works as we live out our lives in this world. And so the big thing that I want you to think about is that faith, as for you guys, the adults have to think about way harder stuff, but for you guys, I want you to just think about the fact that faith always has an object, okay? It always lays hold of something. It always grasps something. And the thing that it grasps is the promises of God that offer us something, okay? So let's pray and ask God to help us do that. Father in heaven, you tell us to have faith. You tell us to believe. uh, And yet you don't tell us to believe blindly, You tell us to believe in the promises of God, and so we ask that you would help all of us to do that, not just these children, but Lord, every single one of us to walk by faith and not by sight, to walk by faith in the promises of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to stand and sing, and while we're singing, you guys can find your chairs or your worksheets. We're going to sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Let's stand and sing together.
Let's dedicate the offering to the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way that you abundantly bless us richly in so many ways. And we ask that, Lord, as we bring to you our gifts and offerings, whether in the bag today or online, that you would accept it from our hands. And that, Lord, you would use it to take your gospel everywhere, to provide for missionaries and ministers, and, Lord, to see uh, your glory established among the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you've got your Bibles with you tonight, we're turning through to Hebrews, Hebrews 11. As I said to the children, Hebrews 11. Uh, this morning, for those who weren't here this morning, this morning we began a series in Hebrews. And the plan is just to walk our way through Hebrews 11. And so this morning, as a way of introduction, we looked at the section just before 11 because it's intimately related and connected, as you'll see this evening. But tonight, we're looking at Hebrews 11, verse 1 and 2, and then we'll begin working our way through the different uh, items and different characters. We're going to pick up at verse 32 of chapter 10. And we're going to read through to chapter 11, verse 3 tonight. And this is indeed God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word for you. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, as Habakkuk writes, yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. And before we consider it, let's come to him in a time of prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the word of God. And we ask that, Lord, as we consider it here tonight, 
that you would speak to us, that as your word is preached, you, Jesus Christ, would speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that we might hear your voice and we might leave nourished and fed. Lord, we are beggars who simply want bread. We want the bread of life. And so, Lord, as I, one beggar, tell other beggars where to find it, we do pray that you would provide it for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I want you to imagine for a moment that you're having a discussion with some friends about faith. And you're trying to sort of define faith. What is faith? You know, we use the word all the time. We talk about believing. We talk about faith. We talk about trust. And someone says, well, how do you define faith? And, and you sort of offer a few different ideas. And maybe you look up a theological textbook. And, and then someone says to you, well, surely there's, a, surely there's a Bible verse that defines faith for us. You know, or a passage that defines faith for us. I wonder how many of you would go to Hebrews 11 verse 1. And go, actually, yes, there is a verse. I remember from my memory, memory uh, school days when I had to memorize all those different passages that I've forgotten 99% of. I remember learning Hebrews 11 verse 1, which says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. wonder how many of you would go there. I would go there. I, used to go, I should say I used to go there because I'm not going to go there anymore as you're about to find out. Because Hebrews 11 verse 1 is not a definition. You see, a definition is a defined statement that enables you to understand something in its total parts, right? And that is not at all what the author has in mind. Just for those of you that were here this morning, cast your mind back to this morning. It will help you understand much easier. The wider context enables us to understand that this is not a definition, but a description. And those are two very different things. He, he's not so much saying, now let me tell you precisely what faith is, but rather let me tell you what faith looks like. So let me, let me show you that from the context. We saw this morning in the immediate context that we are of those who are of faith and preserve our souls to the end. So that is the goal. That's what we're aiming for. We talked about the fact that we're striving to endure through no matter what happens in our lives so that we might endure to the end. So the writer of the Hebrews is worried about faith and patient endurance together. That's the thing. That's the main topic running through these passages. He's not so much talking about how you're saved. We confessed our faith. What is justifying faith? What is saving faith? He's not talking about how do you believe in God and get saved? That's a very different definition or description. What he's talking about, how is the question living faith? What does it look like to live by faith? You see, he's trying to commend to these people an enduring life, isn't he? He doesn't want them to give up. He wants them to labor on to the end. And that's why he uses the passage of Habakkuk, that little section which is indented. It's a quotation from Habakkuk with a few minor changes made here and there, which the New Testament authors often do. And, and this, is, this is part of the prophecy where Habakkuk 
sees the destruction of Jerusalem coming. He sees the approach of Babylon. God reveals it to him. And, and he brings a complaint to God. And, and God turns around to him and says, the destroyer's coming. He's coming. It will happen. But the question for you in the midst of the horror and the destruction of all of this is, will you live by faith? The righteous one will live by faith. Don't look at the things you see directly before you, the approaching armies, look to God by faith. And then you get to the end of Habakkuk and you get that amazing statement, though the fig tree withers, etc., etc., I will rejoice in the Lord. I will put my trust in the Lord. I will believe in the Lord in spite of all of the obstacles around me. And so he intentionally uses that because he's trying to commend to these people a faith that looks beyond the present things that looks to, to the things of God and lays hold of them and endures patiently to the end. And so he wants us to live by faith. And so you can imagine as you get to verse 39, the writer to the Hebrews being a good teacher is thinking about the different questions that his audience might have. And after he finishes saying, we're of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We're, the, we're of those who ensure by holding on by faith, we are going to endure to the very end. And he can imagine someone then asking the question, what does that faith look like though? That's all fine and dandy to say, we are of the faith who hold on to the end. But what is that? We've already believed in God. What does it even look like to see the coming one and yet still believe anyway? And that's the purpose of Hebrews 11. And, and what the writers of the Hebrews didn't do is think, well, you know, I've really encouraged these guys to make sure they endure to the end. So I suppose I'd better give a really technical definition of what, um, of what faith is. That wasn't the goal. No, what he's doing is going, well, the greatest way to spur you on is to show you practically exactly what this looks like. We do this with our children, don't we? When your child says to you, Dad, how do I tie my shoes? You don't say, well, it uses a such and such knot and a such and such knot, and you make sure that you... No, you say, come with me and I'll show you. And you tie your shoes up, Right? And then they massacre it horribly. And you go, let me show you again. Let me show you what tying your shoes looks like. So that's what a good teacher always does. And so the writer to the Hebrews doesn't just commend to them faith, but he uses a whole chapter illustrating the exact thing he's trying to commend to them. People, by faith, living, living for the future. Living for the reward that we talked about. Living for the promise that we talked about this morning. Living in spite of the odds that were against them. And verse 1 and 2 simply introduce that and, and summarize that for us. So what do we find? What is faith? How do we describe faith? Well, he says in the ESV, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, there are some verses in the Bible which you read in English, 
and you think to yourself, that's really, really easy. And there are other verses in the Bible you read in English and you go, that's really weird. This is one of those verses that you read and go, this looks really, really easy. And then, and then you start scratching the surface and discover there's actually a whole lot of stuff in here that makes not much sense. And, and you can tell that because if you look at the different translations of this verse in different Bibles, you'll see that there's a, just a plethora of different ways that it's given. Because it's really hard to work out how to, transla how to translate it into English and even what that means. Now, I'm not going to bore you with the details of the 40-page commentary discussions on the best thing to do with Hebrews 11 verse 1, because that wouldn't be fair on you, even though it excites me tremendously. But let me do my best to just show you what the author is trying to communicate, and, and we may have to do some digging here. But the first thing he says is faith is the assurance of things. And the question we have to immediately ask, is the author talking subjectively or objectively. Let me explain that for you. Subjectively or objectively. Subjective means faith is the insurance that I have within me. Faith is me having assurance in my heart of things hoped for. Okay, that's subjective. Or is it objective? Faith is the thing assured that I hope for. And, and translators and commentators take it both ways. Luther translated it subjectively, which I think is one of the reasons why we've ended up with the subjective type translation. But there's actually a whole bunch of documents that use this word outside of the Bible in a way that really helps us understand what's going on here. It, it's, it's a word that means a title deed or a surety. You know what a title deed is, right? If you've got a title deed, you're entitled to whatever the deed's for, right? You're entitled to the house. If you've got a surety, it means if you don't pay, it is assured, guaranteed that X rich person will cover your debt for you. And this is the objective sense of the word. Now, the meaning is quite different. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that everything in these verses is objective. Because we saw this morning, didn't we, that the whole point was not to look within. The whole point was to look without. That while enduring, we look to Christ. While enduring, we look to the promise. While enduring, we look to the reward. While enduring, we remember what God has enabled us to do already. And so here, that same thing continues on. And we, we know that because when you read through Hebrews 11, what do you see? You see people looking outside of themselves. Abraham, verse 8 of chapter 11, obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. So he's looking to the promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's objective, isn't it? He's looking out to something objective that he can lay hold of and say, that's what I'm going towards. 
And what the writer of the Hebrews desperately wants you and I to do as we live out our lives is not to look subjectively for something within ourselves. Because what's wrong with the subjective? Sometimes it's here, and the next day it's here. And then you wake up the next day, and it's even further. And the next day it's doing better, and up and down it goes. There's emotions. There's all sorts of different things that play into it. But the sure, objective truths of God never change. And so he says, now faith is the title deed or the, the surety of things hoped for. Or you could translate it, now faith is the title deed we are hoping in. So what that means is, what that means is that God has given us a surety promise, a guarantee that we lay hold of and hope in. Now, we run into problems here in English, don't we? Because hope and hope and hope are all very different things. I really hope, I really hope, people say, I win the lotto this weekend. And none of them do. Okay, there's the very odd one, but almost none of them do, right? I really hope, people say, I get married one day. I really hope we have children one day. That is not what we're talking about here. Hope in the scriptures is like sitting on the chair you know will hold your weight. And so he says, we have a sure title deed that is guaranteed to pay that we rest all of our hopes upon. We make it our stay. You know what a stay is? You attach a stay to a post. Okay, I, I know you guys aren't farmers, but some of you used to be in farming families. But you put a post in, and then if you've got a really long line of fencing, actually, I can illustrate this beautiful because I just built a fence around a veggie garden during my holiday. And the ground is soft as anything. And I strung a wire along the top, and I didn't put a stay in, though I knew better. And I started cranking up the tension. I started cranking up the tension on this line. And you know what happened to the post? The post went like this. And now I've got this ugly looking post on my fence. But a stay is a, is a support beam that is rooted into the ground that will ensure that it never moves. You see, we are the post resting on the surety of God. So that's the first thing he says to us. It is resting upon a surety, hoping upon a surety. So that we're going to deal with what that is in a second. But first, the next thing he says, have a look at the text. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now again, you have to ask yourself, objective or subjective? We're dealing with objective. Conviction is not objective, is it? Well, I feel really convicted that this is true. Now, I don't know about you, but I have doubts sometimes. It just comes out of nowhere. I just randomly wake up in the morning. I had this, honestly, like a month ago in the middle of my holiday. I'm just sitting there and I wake up one day and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I have the thought, you know, what, if I, what if I die and discover I was wrong? Now, maybe you're all way holier than me and you never get doubts. I don't know. But I get doubts. So if, 
if my faith is based on my conviction of things, I'm in serious trouble because my conviction is really weak at times. Sure, other times it's strong, but a lot of the time it's weak. This, this word for conviction, you could translate, and Calvin would prefer this, you can translate it as evidence or proof. So that would mean faith is an evidence of things not seen. Faith is an evidence of things not seen, which means it's not so much faith as me having a conviction about something, but rather faith is me laying hold of something that is proved, something that's tested. Now, one of the kids said, because it's sturdily made, because I've sat on it before, right? There's nothing worse than sitting on a chair you've never sat on that looks really dodgy. You think to yourself, well, I don't know if I want to sit on that. But when you've sat on a chair before, it doesn't matter how dodgy it looks. You know it's going to hold your weight, right? And so you have confidence to sit on it. Not because you're amazing at sitting on chairs, but because you know the chair is sturdy. And that's what we're dealing with here. We have an evidenced, a proved faith. Something that's grounded. Something that doesn't give way. The writer is drawing us away from ourselves and into verified fact. And it's at this point that we begin to ask ourselves the question, okay, that's all wonderful and fine, but what is this, this fact? What is this objective truth? What is this thing that we lay hold of? Because the problem is it's unseen, right? And isn't it fascinating that the writer says we look to evidenced and unseen? You think to yourself, that doesn't make any sense, Logan. How can it be evidenced and unseen at the same time? That doesn't work. Well, it doesn't when you're talking about something earthly, does it? It does when you're talking about something from God. You see, we have evidenced truth that is not seen. We have title deeds given to us. And they're found in the Word of God. And, and we're going to, I think, we're going to deal with verse 3 next week. But verse 3 is the great illustration of this. Have a look at verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So we understand that the universe, everything we see around us, was created by the word of God. How do we understand that? It's not because we see it, right? It's not because I look outside and see grass upon the lawn that I think the Lord created everything by his word. I would have no way of knowing that ever. By just looking at creation, he says, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What's his point? By faith, I know. So if you think by objective truth, by evidence, by an assurity, I know that everything was made out of the word of God. Where would I go to find that? Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The reason I know everything's made out of the word of God by God is not because I see it, not because of archaeological evidence, though that's a helpful secondary thing. None of that reveals any of that. The only hope I have is that God himself reveals it. This is why we're not surprised 
when scientists can't seem to work out where everything came from. Because God's told us where it came from. And this is his example of this very fact. We lay hold of objective truth. So how does that help us as we live out the reality of verse 32 to 39? How do we live out our Christian lives day to day by faith, with a living faith, by faith, like these people in chapter 11, with the assurity, with the surety, or, or with the evidence, or with the proof? How do we do that? Calvin touches on this in just the most stunning passage. He, he holds together this, this reality of our present experience and yet what we do with it. It's a little bit of a longish quote, but bear with me. Calvin says, Eternal life is promised, but it is promised to the dead. We are told of the resurrection of the blessed, but meantime we are involved in corruption. We are declared to be just, and yet sin dwells within us. We hear that we are blessed, but meantime we are overwhelmed by untold miseries. We are promised an abundance of all good things, but we are often hungry and thirsty. God proclaims that he will come to us immediately, but seems to be deaf to our cries. What would happen to us if we did not rely on our hope and if our minds did not emerge above the world out of the midst of darkness through the shining word of God and by his spirit? Do you feel the tension he's saying? We're told all this stuff and there's so much suffering and misery and horror, but when we see, we hear, and when we see, we don't get it. God tells us things, and yet we experience what feels like the opposite, right? So if it's subjective, what that means is we're going to go, yeah, God says I'm blessed, but I don't feel blessed. And then our faith wavers. But when God says I'm blessed... And the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and seals that upon my heart. Then I know I am blessed in spite of what I see. This is why he says the conviction of things not seen. And so what we're going to see throughout the chapter 11 is what? They didn't receive it. It was promised, but they didn't receive it. You see, faith is, as I said to the children, faith, living by faith is laying hold of the things promised to us by God. The objective fact, in spite of all of the obstacles around us, when God says to us, I love you and I will only work good and we're hated by everyone around us, everything within us, everything without us screams against us, rubbish. And we have to look to the promises of God. It is the only thing that is a sure foundation. It is the only thing that will hold us in the darkness and misery of this world. When people betray us and hate us and hurt us and abandon us and leave us or they die or we get sick. All of the sorrows and miseries we cannot look with and we must look to the promises of God because we can't see God himself, can we? 
And we cannot hear God ourselves with our human ears. We must look to what He has revealed in the Scriptures. And He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so when you feel forsaken and you feel alone, you don't say, well, very good to say that, but I don't feel very not forsaken today. You say, in spite of what I feel, God has promised. He will never leave me or forsake me. He says, lo, I am with you always to the very ends of the earth. And you've got to travel somewhere and you think to yourself, oh, that's fine and dandy. I remember my parents going to Papua New Guinea. You know, it's like, oh, well, it's fine and dandy to say you'll go with me to the ends of the earth. I'm going to some crazy place. Ask mum about her experience trying to get her way to PNG. Fear. What if we look to the promises of God? We say, God has promised that he will go with me. He has promised he will go before me. It's the only foundation we've got to rest upon. You see, we must press into all of the things that are offered to us in the Word of God. This, this is why, brothers and sisters, when you read the Word of God, don't just read it. You know what I mean? When you read it, and all of a sudden you get to the end of a chapter, and you realize all of a sudden you've got no idea what you've been reading. And you go, oh man, I better start again. And you get two paragraphs down, and you go, yeah, I did it again. I was thinking about the league or something. I don't know. Whatever it is that distracts you. You start, oh, I did it again. And you go back to the top, and you get halfway, and you go, oh, I've done it again. Mine the word of God for the promises of God so that you can rest your feet upon them. Let me give you one tiny little tip that I guarantee will bless your soul. I guarantee it will bless your soul. Get a book, just a little 1B5 notebook or whatever, any type of notebook. Every single time you see a promise of God on the scriptures, write it in that book and read it every single day. I mean, you can be lazy and just Google the promises of God if you really want, but it won't be half as rewarding as writing your own book. Mine the word of God for his promises. I can't tell you how many times on a Sunday morning when I am terrified to come and stand up in this place, I turn to the word of God and I turn to the promises of God and I think of him saying to me and I read him saying, do not fear for I am with you when you don't want to go to the meeting, when you don't want to confront your loved one, when you don't want to do the things, turn to the scriptures. When you're filled with despair and doubt and fear, turn to the promises of God. Don't look within. Don't look at one another. Look to the promises of God. And this is so captured so beautifully in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, Go buy a copy and read it tomorrow. Christian gets trapped, gets caught by a giant in the castle of despair. And him and his friend are beaten every day. Put back in the cage, taken out, beaten, put back in the cage, taken out, beaten, put back in the cage. And they're filled with despair and sorrow. And the next day they're going to be killed and cooked and eaten. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Christian says, Wait a second. I remember I've got a key in my pocket that opens any cage. And his friend, I think it's evangelist, says to him, or whichever, faithful maybe, says to him, 
well, why don't you get it out then? It's a pretty good idea, right? Why don't you get it out then? And the key was called promise. Why? Because it's the promises of God that open up the cages of despair and sorrow and horror and fear that so bind us in our lives and set us free to live for God. Yeah, if you, if you ever read Christian biography, oh, brothers and sisters, read Christian biography. If you read Christian biography, one of the things that strikes you, you look at these saints of old, and if in the face of just the most horrendous situations, they just keep on walking and just keep on going. You know, take, a, take a Vermbrand, 14 years in torture facilities. And he just keeps on preaching the gospel. And he just keeps on living for Jesus. And he has this striking statement he makes. He says, you know, after being in the prison for eight years, the first time, being in prison for eight years, at some point I, forget, I forgot almost all of the scriptures that I had learned. We had no Bibles the promises of God would minister to my heart. What else are you going to rest your faith upon? I mean, what other option is there? Because at the end of the day, it's by faith that we're commended before God. It's not by works. That's why he says in verse 2, for by it, faith, the people of God, sorry, the people of old, it's literally elders, received their commendation. All of the people from Adam, all of the believers from Adam, all the way through to the New Testament. He's talking about, he says, this is how they received their commendation. How did they receive their well witness, the word is, a good testimony by what they did, by defeating lions, by tearing them apart with their hands. I mean, Samson's in the list. I'm not sure how he made it in the list, but that's all right. By burning their daughters. Jephthah's in there. By killing people like Moses. By letting his wife get slept around with, possibly, like Abraham. No. By laying hold of the promises of God and in spite of everything that sits before them, in spite of all of the obstacles, believing that God will be faithful to do that which he promises because he never lies. He is always faithful. He is always steadfast. And so I don't care whatever your obstacle is lying before you. I don't care how big it is. I don't care how ugly it is. I don't care how terrifying it is. God promises to be with you. I mean, just think about some of the promises. He promises to work everything for our good. Do you believe that? Do you truly believe that when cancer turns up on the medical certificate? I can't tell you how dumbfounded I was. Do you know, I came back. Well, you know I came back. but I came back after my holiday, and there was a bunch of people sick while I was on holiday, right? And you guys are amazing. No one contacted me, which I was a little bit irritated about, but... I really appreciate your love that no one told me at the same time. But, do you know, every single person I've spoken to who was sick has said the same thing to me. I can see how God is working amazing good through my sorrows. 
and there's people that you don't know of who have spoken to me. I can't tell you the amount of times in the last seven years I've sat with someone who has said to me, I know that God is working this for my good. And people that have said, I don't know how, I don't know what it looks like, but I know God will. This is the goodness of God. A foundation that can never be shaken. A guaranteed surety. Not just for eternal life, but for every day of our life. You know, we, we love to talk about faith as Reformed people, don't we? we love, especially when someone thinks that we're saved by works, then we especially love to talk about faith. And um, if you're an internet warrior, you love it even more. But the real question that the writer to the Hebrews is interested in, Hebrews 11, is not so much how well do you talk about your faith, but how well do you live your faith? By laying hold of the promises of God and in spite of everything before you, walking, not by sight, but as we're going to sing in a, sh in a second, but by faith. May God grant every single one of us by his Holy Spirit, through his word, in his promises to do so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the, the glorious promises that you've given us. Lord, time does not allow us to recall all of them. We could spend all night. But we especially thank you that you are faithful to keep your promises. And that you never lie or change. And so we can bank everything on them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing that song together, brothers and sisters, in response. And may it be true for you. By faith, we see the hand of God.
Brothers and sisters, lift up your hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ as you go forth to another week. Serve him, love him, trust him, and do so with the blessing of God upon you. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and will surely do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be upon you all. Amen. Now, blessed be the Lord our God. Turn.